You're listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast with me, Susan Romsdorf-Terry, and... Luke Romsdorf-Terry, where we read a book from the Cat Who Mystery series and discuss it. And on today's episode, we are talking about the eighth book in the series, The Cat Who Sniffed Blue. Now, we hope you enjoyed uh, your Thanksgiving holidays. We stayed home. We cooked. Uh, I cooked a little bit. Uh, Susan cooked quite a bit more <laughs> and made way too much food for too few people. And we still have plenty of leftovers that we're munching on. We actually just had some pumpkin pie. And that was actually our second pumpkin pie. Well, because I make a traditional pumpkin pie, and then it was decided that since there was nobody around to judge, we were going to try a different recipe for pumpkin pie to see how it turned out. It was fine. It's it's perfectly it, good yeah. pumpkin pie. We'll be going back to the traditional recipe oh, no. for we'll actual people. Traditional for, a traditional recipe going for it, I think. But it was a nice <laughs> experimentation. Absolutely. And and not having any pressure on top of it was really nice. Anyways. Back, <laughs> back to the book. <laughs> uh, but before, uh, one thing we should also say, too, beforehand, as usual, here be spoilers ahead. So anybody who is listening to this, if you've not read the book, we encourage you to go do so right now. We'll give you a few moments just to go ahead and do that. Welcome back. Thank you. And, <laughs> and you know what? If you don't care and you just want to find out what happened in the books, please just listen on. Yes, absolutely. Go right ahead. Alrighty. So we're still in the era of um, of George Goodall reading reading the audiobooks. Um, still not as easy to find yet. Um, and this, this one was published when? 1988. 1988. So same author, uh, same reader from the previous books. Yep. All right. And this is the last of three books that, as we've mentioned before, um, that were published in 1988, uh, including the previous book, The Cat Who Knew Shakespeare, and a collection of uh, short stories known as The Cat Who Had 14 Tales. And that's one we are not going to be we reading. We are not reading. Could in... you be convinced to read it eventually, <laughs> maybe, if there was a listener demand? If there was listener demand, sure. But the reason, but again, the reason <laughs> that I feel that it's not necessarily important to read, particularly not important to read, in sequence is because it's a collection of short stories that are already in the books. Um, so mm -hmm. if our listeners are actually reading the books <laughs> along with us, they've already read these stories. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also really hard to summarize a short story collection. No, understandable. Um, so. I'm just just tossing it out there. It's sim it's it's the the history of the Targaryen dynasty before yes. they came to Dragonstone, uh, you know, in Song of far Ice and more Fire. Far more interesting than uh, this tale of Hilda the Clipper and so on and so <laughs> forth. I'll explain that later. Yes, um, you get to Aegon the Conqueror and all that, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Yeah, less uh, important here. But back to um, Pickaxe. Back to Pickaxe. Welcome back. Now, one thing you make mention, speaking of Shakespeare, yes. in your notes here, is that this book is structured as a play. Yes. We have a prologue. We have every chapter is notated as a scene with dramatis personae. Uh, there is an intermission, and of course, there's an epilogue. Um, and so it's structured as Act One and Act Two. It's fascinating. Is there an entree act with uh, music that plays? Or uh, sadly, no. They they never got quite that uh, ambitious. Do they have an intermission when you're supposed to go use the bathroom or go get some more popcorn? Yes, there is actually an intermission. It's a one-page thing. We'll talk about it when ah, we get there. Oh, okay. I'm excited. Yeah, it's fun. Um, oh, and then we'll talk about a review from Publishers Weekly at the end of this um, <laughs> that I found recently and has made me laugh a lot. But back to Pickaxe, and the K Mansion is about to be reborn as a theater. The theater club is deep in rehearsals for Arsenic and Old Lace as their opening production, and they've cast Quill as Teddy. As Teddy. Not as Mortimer, but as Teddy. Not as Mortimer. Well, he's, he's in his 50s. He's not going to be he's not going to be playing the romantic lead. Fair, okay, fair enough. No, no, he's playing the crazy uncle who's going to come charging up the going to come charging up the stairs with a bugle. Um, <laughs> I think it's I think it's perfect casting. After rehearsal one night, they celebrate Quill's birthday. Uh, it's a surprise. It goes over not great. Quill gets a little bit terrified when he realizes there are people in his apartment when he's not expecting them to be. That would be a bit would. terrifying, yes. Um, and especially since apparently they decided to surprise him with a taxidermied bear. Was there any inclination in previous books that this is something he may oh, it's somewhat not, enjoy? It's not for him. Oh. It's simply because they had it and they thought it would be funny. Oh. It's on it's actually on its way to the, the taxidermy bear is actually on its way to the hotel booze where it will <laughs> get pride of place in their new dining room. Oh, this makes absolute just the same amount of sense then I guess. Exactly. So they had it, so they used it. So they had it. It. It's a thing. This is what this, by the way, is what introduces us to the lovely Wally Todd Whistle, who is the local taxidermist. 
<laughs> because when you live in a community where hunting and fishing and uh, and and uh, and killing sports are the thing to do, then you need a good taxidermist. Mm-hmm. And I'm that's sure Wally. He, and I'm sure he's rolling in it. He is excellent, apparently. Um, so we're introduced to the cast, which includes uh, the Fitch twins, Harley and David. And let's remember the Fitch twins were home from Yale and played the footman at uh, Quill's vintage dinner party before the K-Mansion burned down and uh, bring his yes. book. And we, uh, we of course, have, we, we are reintroduced to Fran Brody, who's uh, the director, the police chief's daughter, um, and <laughs> Quill's decorator. Mm-hmm. We, of course, as I mentioned, have Wally Toddwessel, who is the local taxidermist and builds the sets. Oh, okay. Um, we also have David's wife, Jill, who is also helping with set design and painting and things like that. We've got the rest of the cast. Um, we've got Carol Landspeak. The uh, Carol Landspeak, who's playing one of the sisters. Susan Exbridge is playing one of the sisters. Um, <laughs> mix and match into various other things. Um, but the heart of the Fitch twins, um, I believe, if I read this correctly, David is playing Mortimer. And Harley is actually playing um, the bad guy who comes in looking like Boris Karloff. Oh, uh, uh, it's not Dr. No, Jonathan. Jonathan, mm-hmm. the brother. I did. This is my second play I ever did. The th- well, my, I'm sorry, my third play I ever did in Denver. And I know it. Sent- yeah, sentimental. Sentimental attachments. attachments. I yeah, it's a lot of fun. I played Officer Klein, one of the cops at the end. <laughs> It's also responsible for one of my favorite annoying costume or pedantic moments. Um, which is? Which is, uh, there is a, a moment where one of the sisters gets ready to, uh, you know, to mourn the death of their latest, um, their latest rumor. And she says, oh, great, I'll go, uh, you know, I'll go wear my, I'll put on my black bombazine in Mother's Old Brooch. It's a brooch. Uh, and, it, and I remember the director in high school making it very clear that it had to be a brooch because you broach a subject and you wear a brooch. And for some reason, this has been the hill that I want to die on as a costumer. Go figure. This has been a, uh, something that has come up more often than you think it would in this household. <laughs> it's the facts of life. Um, it's Well, it's it's like Macron versus Macron. They are two very distinctive exactly. things. So it's understandable to see where it comes from, why it comes that way. Absolutely. All right. Anyway, back to, back to what we were doing. Um, so there's this party. Everyone's admiring the cats. And they're admiring the newly arrived Macintosh coat of arms that we uh, that we picked up in uh, the cat who turned on and off. Quill and has finally had that's this. That's his mother's clan, that's correct? That's his mother's clan, the Macintosh clan. Uh-huh. He finally had this shipped up from down below, and uh, now he's looking to have it integrated into his new home, which is, of course, the uh, the carriage house apartments that he's been uh, slowly refinishing, slowly finishing throughout uh, the last couple of books. Wonderful. So good. A little bit of history. Yeah, family history of Quill. Family history with so Quill. Good. Family history for the for you know for the his family of three. And afterwards, uh, the police chief Brody stops by to chat with <laughs> Quill about Coco's abilities because Brody After has shooting a great white shark. <laughs> um, because Brody has been down below having a, uh, a at, at a uh, law enforcement conference, and he meets Lieutenant Hames, who's one of the detectives that worked with Quill on a couple of cases. In, oh, from Shaclevroy. Yes, it's from Shaclevroy from one of the very early books. Oh, wow. So that's kind of fun because Lieutenant Hames is also one of the few who really believed in Coco's abilities. So Brody is now wondering, hey, can we put him on the force and see if he can <laughs> help us out? Because Pickaxe is experiencing right now um, a pretty nasty rash of petty and in some cases not so petty vandalism. Hmm. Opening fire hydrants, which eventually escalates to breaking into a dentist's office, probably looking for drugs. Hmm. And... It's rumored to be led by Chad Landspeak, who is the youngest son of Larry and Carol Landspeak, who are the owners of the department store. Um, Larry, by the way, was the butler at Quill's party. Um, in addition to all of this information that Brody is giving us, he also mentions that his daughter Fran used to date David Fitch in high school. Because hmm. originally, uh, and and, uh, and they were expected to get married. Um, but... In theory, she wanted a career, so it didn't happen. Now she's pursuing Quill, by the way, and trying to get him to decorate in fur bedspreads and mirrored ceilings. What happened to our previous uh, romantic... Polly? Polly, yes. Oh, so Polly's still here, but we'll talk about oh, this. Oh, oh, it's going to get juicy. Okay, it okay, It does okay. get a little bit juicy. All right, all right, all right. Um, so she's pursuing Quill. And it should be mentioned that she's pursuing Quill knowing that he has a relationship. He's been developing a relationship. Okay, so Polly's still in the Polly's picture. Polly's still very okay. much in the picture, although um, there's oh, a caveat oh, oh, to that. Um, right. Quill it mentions that he's since turned 50, and he's really finding he prefers women his own age, which, duh. You know, there's there's that whole thing about ma- dating younger women makes men feel young at heart, but 
I question that. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, Tell that to Larry King. Yeah. We won't go there. All right. The cats, by the way, are now enjoying daily deliveries from the new chef, the new new chef at the Old Stone Mill. Oh. Um, this is being delivered by six foot five Derek Cuddlebrink. Uh, yes, the, the bus boy, since Iris is now managing the Goodwinter Farm Museum. Oh. Um, Quill's nosiness after talking with Brody sends him to Landspeak's department store to meet this ne'er-do-well son. Uh, the Landspeaks have three children. Uh, the youngest one is the only one that they don't brag about at parties. Um, <laughs> poor guy. He meets the guy, and, asks, and it turns out that Chad doesn't really fit into his parents' world, unsurprisingly, for a third child. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that Chad does is that he's a great hunter and trapper, and he makes his own snowshoes. Oh. So Quill, thinking quickly, offers to have him come show him some of his snowshoe designs and uh, plans to buy a pair of snowshoes. Um, mm-hmm. he's only We're only in... Uh, we're not quite to the end of year two, mm-hmm. timeline-wise. Time so Quill's really only had a, uh, two winters up there, and, he, and the first two... Um, were a bit more of an adventure than he's planning on. So now he's, you know, hoping by his third winter, he'll actually get to sit down and enjoy some of the North Country um, in the winter, which would be nice. But we haven't gotten there yet. So Chad uh, Chad comes, delivers the snowshoes. Uh, Quill picks a pair. And then uh, when he, Quill tries to write him a check, uh, Chad insists on cash. Um, oh. And this becomes our sign of the times because... Quill then has to make Chad drive him to a certain business that he knows will cash a check for him. Um, <laughs> you can't just go to an ATM and yeah, they, do a quick cash. Yeah, they don't have an they don't have an ATM in pickaxe yet. I don't think. Uh, yeah, it would, it would strike me as surprising. Not even like say a gas station or whatnot. But Mm-mm. I mean, nowadays cash. Who cares? Nowadays, ca- nobody, who, who nobody carries, carries cash, cash anymore. Yeah. Yeah, but this is the, this is that awkward transition where people were starting to use checks more. Um, and unfortunately, that led to a lot of check fraud. So, mm-hmm. understandably, people who didn't mess, who live on the fringes, as Chad does, um, would probably insist on cash. It's understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, the the pharmacy cashes a check for him, uh, gives him the money, and pharmacy. they get to, yeah, they get to um, and he has Quill has Chad drop uh, drop him off at rehearsals. Um, he's late. Everybody is late that day. Oh dear. Um, don't don't be late. Don't do, be late. Speaking as theatrical types ourselves, don't wear flip flops and don't be late. <laughs> don't wear flip flops. Yeah. <laughs> There's also you know while they're driving, Quill gets a little bit nosy and and pokes at Chad about some of the vandalism and uh, particularly the dental office. And Chad is vehemently denying being involved at all. Hmm. He says he was at a party in the town of Chipmunk. The town of Chipmunk. Chipmunk. Chipmunk That's in Moose County. Chipmunk in Moose County. And this is where the vandals are coming from. They're coming from the town of Chipmunk. I see. Now, so uh, when Quill was asking, was he doing it like, oh, where were you on this night? Or is it more, I see. Okay. So I've heard about this vandalism. What did you th- What did you think about it? Well, I wasn't involved. I was at a party in Chipmunk. Okay. So, kind of so it is a bit of a guilty conscience thing. Oh, then. totally a guilty okay. conscience thing. Um, so Quill gets to rehearsal. It's terrible. Ugh. It's just a terrible night of rehearsal. Uh. Everybody's late. Somebody gets the giggles. Um, and the twins don't show up. Oh, no. And with that, everyone's distracted, and Fran just says, screw it, we, we need to call this a night. There's only so much you can fight with it about rehearsal, and sometimes you just need to say, you know what, everybody go home. We'll try again tomorrow. We've all been there. Yep. Now, the next day, Quill drops by the new newspaper office where they're preparing for its opening. Arch and Junior are finalizing the layout. Hixie Rice is selling advertising. Very successfully, it should be mentioned here. Oh, Hixie. Um, That's yeah, great. exactly. But there's a problem. See, the paper does, still doesn't have a name. Um, and it's a, and, a very big problem. You know, they're looking at the pickaxe clarion and all of these noble names. And Hixie, brilliant Hixie, dares the men to call it the Moose County something and let the readers pick the new name. <laughs> they don't have a better option? Arch goes with it. <laughs> newspaper um, newspaper face. <laughs> newspaper face. <laughs> also, our, you know, with that settled, Arch asks Quill to consider writing a column for the paper. If it won't interfere with his novel. It should be mentioned there. He's is no still, work, still working still on that working novel, Quill. So, and, he, and Quill is intrigued by the idea of trying to write a column. He, he misses deadlines. He misses having... Um, a little bit of the old newsman coming exactly. back in. Interesting. He's, he's okay. finding he's missing this, so... Um, so he's considering this, but as he's considering this, Roger McGilvery, uh, rushes in to announce that Harley Fitch and his pregnant wife, Belle, have been found murdered. What? They have been shot in their front hallway on their way to rehearsal. Oh my God. I mean, it wasn't that bad of a rehearsal. It can't have been. <laughs> they didn't make it. Well, we know why. We know why. We know why now. <laughs> so Quill is now contemplating how the newspaper is going to cover the murder. And he notices that Coco is developing a really unfortunate habit at this point. 
he, Coco has started licking all of Quill's envelopes and stamps. <laughs> He's developing a thing for adhesives. It's a mess. And of course, hey, there's the title. There's the title. He's and not this just is sniffing also, glue, he's licking it. This is also the day, too, where you had to lick envelopes. Uh, you had to lick stamps. You still have to lick envelopes, but. Well, you do unless you use the uh, the little squidgy things that that produce a mild and water adhesive, and then you just. True. Because I don't, I don't know about you, but in this day and age, the last thing I want to be doing is licking, a, is licking a whole bunch of envelopes. Oh, absolutely. So I don't do that. Anymore. We've all seen Seinfeld, but more importantly, <laughs> I, I, not more importantly, but also just I can't remember the last time I licked a stamp. If no, ever. they have been sticky. Um, they've been, yeah, at they've been adhesive. for the last fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Um, and actual stickers. So you know, I remember licking stamps as a kid, but it's they've been stickers for a very for long time, quite some time. Yeah, so it's so. Uh, you know, old millennials talking. Oh, we remember <laughs> we, we had to lick stamps. What's a stamp, Grandpa? Exactly. Play your uh, Fortnite anyway. And moving on. Uh, so frustrating as this new habit is, it also starts Quill's mustache tingling. So oh. what are the connection? What's what is he trying? What attention is he trying to get with these adhesives? It should be pointed out that Harley Fitch makes model ships. Wally Todd Whistle, who does the sets, as I mentioned, is a taxidermist. And Eddington Smith, who we're about to meet, is a bookbinder. And these mm. are all professions and, and all professions slash hobbies that require extensive contact with glues. Hmm. I mentioned Polly a little bit earlier. Uh-huh. Um, technically, she and Quill are still a thing, but Polly has been feeling rather, let's say, left out Uh-oh. for the last little bit because... She thinks that she is convinced that Quill is going to write the great Northern American novel, and she feels that his spending time with the theater crowd is going to take away time from his novel, and she's also frankly jealous of the skinnier women who were involved in theater. But now that the show isn't going on, Polly agrees to go to dinner with Quill again, and we get our first look at one of the very few restaurants that is not described as terrible at the first time we meet it. (laughs) And this is Tipsy's Tavern. Tipsy's Tavern. Tipsy's Tavern. Tipsy's All Tavern, right. by the way, is named for the original owner's cat. Uh, there is supposedly a portrait of said cat in the dining room. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a bit of controversy about that in the later book. We'll get there when we get there. Oh, um, all right. <laughs> so while Polly and Quill are at dinner, we get a whole slew of Fitch family gossip. Harley and Belle got married in Las Vegas, while David and Jill got married in a huge traditional Moose County wedding that apparently cost a fortune. Harley and Jill, however, used to be a couple back when David was dating Fran Brody. But Hmm. then Harley disappears for a year, supposedly traveling. We will later find out it was jail. Criminal negligence, a woman was killed. Huh. So he goes to jail for a year. Then while he was gone, David and Jill get together after rumors that Mrs. Fitch warned him off of Fran, who she considered too low class. And when Harley came home, found out that David had married his girl, he decides to marry the maid, who is Belle from Chipmunk, as an F.U. to his snobby family. Wow. That is quite an F.U. Jeez. <laughs> after we've gotten all of that gossip, it's then mentioned that it's very unusual for a big Moose County family like the Fitches um, to have a private funeral. But that's hmm. what they're doing for Harley and Belle. Quill noses around a little bit more, gets his first deadline for his new column, and decides to interview Eddington Smith, who is the owner of the used and rare bookstore. Uh, learns that from Eddington that the Fitch Mansion has an enviable, enviable collection of rare books, apparently including some Victorian pornography that would be worth over a million dollars each in today's money. That is a r- pornography worth a million dollars. Oh yeah, some of the Victorian pornography. Uh, if you look at if you look at rare book sites, those are the kind of books that people pay huge amounts of money for. Wow. And always have. You know, go figure. Knowing that uh, there's this fabulous collection of uh, very expensive rare books, Quill decides, to, um, among other things, <laughs> to wrangle an invitation to tag along with Ed on his next trip because Ed is because Eddington is uh, hired to care for the books. Hmm. Um, a lot of these old families, apparently, uh, keep Ed on retainer to come and have him take care of their collections of uh, old and rare collections of books. Um, so that they can keep all of that money together. It also turns out, uh, after Quill finishes his interview with Edding Smith, goes back to the uh, he, he goes back to the newspaper office and finds out that Chad Lanspeak is actually a suspect in the murder oh, really? of Harley and Bell. Until Quill provides an alibi, since Chad was selling him snowshoes at the time of the murder. That good news is countered by the bad news that the Fitch matriarch Margaret uh, is in the hospital after suffering a massive stroke. Oh no! Which is terrible news for all of the committees that she sits on, which is a lot. Mm. That uh, yet another stop by the newspaper office to pick up the latest gossip, which is that Harley and Belle were wearing rehearsal clothes when they were shot, despite Belle not being involved in the show in any way. Huh? 
Bell was also shot first. Random information, but there we go. Rehearsal um, clothes or rehearsal, like their costumes? No. Um, there's a very distinctive idea um, in these books of what rehearsal clothes look like. <laughs> um, and unlike you and I, who, quite frankly, will go to rehearsal in literally whatever we're wearing that during that day, apparently in Moose County, you go to rehearsal in your oldest raggedy jeans, holy sweatshirts, um, whatever your your idea of hobo wear is. <laughs> apparently that is rehearsal wear because that's how she always describes it and she does this in several books interesting um, so when they say that they're in rehearsal wear that's what they mean just um, ratty, ratty worn clothes, clothes that you would use for painting or just exactly. being around the house mm-hmm. gotcha yeah not um, apparently they're, they're nicer clothes that they might normally be wearing but again Belle is not involved in the show in any way so why is she so wearing why, yeah why is she wearing yeah, her the is, rehearsal clothes the mustache is a twingling um that's a mustache. Later that, yes, I like that. I like that. We'll keep that noise. So later in that day, though, we have the return of Alacoque Wright. Ooh. Because uh-huh. there has to be some kind of architect to design this new theater. And it turns out that Alacoque, after running away with an engineer, started specialize. It became actually finally became an architect and specializes in, in doing small theaters. Huh. So she's up and she is busting the balls of the construction crew, which they complained about earlier in the book. And I, on the other hand, was like, yes, go girl. Um, she's turned out to be very good at her job, which is great. Well, good. Um, so Quill takes her to dinner and uh, they are surprised to see um, Polly, who's dining with Don Exbridge. Uh, and Polly is not pleased to see them. Don Exbridge. Don Exbridge of XYZ Enterprises. Oh, yes. The ex-husband of Susan. Um, the ex of XYZ, The ex of XYZ, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. So <laughs> this is our this is our scammy developer. Um, and we'll find out later that all they're trying to, that Don wants to take Margaret's place on the library board. Um, Polly was instead trying to get him to just make a donation hmm. instead of actually being involved in the board. Um, <laughs> We'll find out that later. But anyway, um, but unfortunately, all of this gets superseded by some really terrible news. Um, the waitress actually drops their dessert because of the news. Um, and that is that Mrs. Fitch has passed away from her stroke. Oh, no. After which Mr. Fitch uh, goes out to his car and shoots himself. Oh, jeez. So a terrible night all the way around. Absolutely. So she's, she, they're hearing this in the restaurant. Yeah, it's over the radio? No, it's, well, it... It came to news to the uh, to the the waitress in question um, is uh, you know is, is a longtime friend of the family I see. Uh, of the Vitches, so she got the news. So somebody came to tell her the news, and then she um, was and then just she so, and right, then right, right. when she freaks out, everyone needs to know. Well, why did you freak out? So what happened? What you dropped the pie. Yes, I think it was cheesecake, but that's okay. <laughs> you dropped dessert. You dropped dessert. <laughs> Either way, so oh jeez, it's a terrible night. For, yes, for everybody. Yeah. Fitches especially. Yeah, there goes there goes most of that family. Um, so the next swoop. day, yeah, so the next day we're, so, we're moving on um, because the news is that the newspaper finally has a name and oh. it is officially the Moose County something. <laughs> Arch is alternately thrilled and dejected because he's thrilled because he's doing exactly what he's always wanted to do, which is running his own paper. Um, but he just wishes the name was a bit more normal. Like the fluxion or the rampage. Yes, the morning. I mean, he wanted to call it the Moose County Bugle or the Moose County Clarion. No, that is an absolute normal name, but I've never heard of a rampage. I've never heard of a newspaper called the Rampage. Well, that's not a terrible tabloid. We've talked about Arch wishing that the name was just more normal. (laughs) Sorry, Arch, you moved to the North County. This is what we got. But nevertheless, the paper is celebrating uh, their success and the enthusiasm of the readers because let's remember that this name was picked by a countywide vote. So can, so it, so in a way, it was newspaper McNewspaper face. Yes, yes, they actually <laughs> they had a ballot in the paper and said pick the name, um, you know, and enough people and and the majority <laughs> of people, like seventy percent, wrote in Moose County something. Moose County something. So there it is. Read the something. <laughs> Extra, extra. Yes. There's all well as the, the the saying later becomes. There's always something at the something. <laughs> Gotta love it. I like that a lot. So, <laughs> with all of this, Quill uh, gets nosy and goes to Mildred Hanstable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, because in addition to having taught in uh, so so in addition to now being the paper's food editors, which is why she's at the party. Um, let's remember that Mildred Hanstable taught at Moose County um, Public For Schools for a long time, twenty plus years, mm-hmm. and um, so she, of course, knows the Fitch twins and Bell, whose last name is Urkel. Poor thing, oh, and Jill. Bell Urkel. 
Yes, her name is Belle Urkel. A predating, I'm sure, Family Matters by uh, not quite. some time. Not quite. I've, well, 1988, so yeah, a few years. And I don't want to, we're not going to look up Urkel no, history no, right now, but either way, up. poor thing. Um, <laughs> and then Mildred's son-in-law, Roger, shows back up, and he gets to drop yet another bit of a bombshell. Apparently that suicide of Mr. Fitch after his wife uh, passed away... That was premeditated. Oh. Because before he shot himself, he had drafted a letter of resignation for himself uh, from the bank where he works and where the twins were vice president to his to daddy's president. Um, he has drafted a resignation for himself and the remaining twin, David. He tendered um, his son's he, resignation for him? He tendered his son's him. resignation for him. Huh. Um, gossip time is, however, cut off when Arch announces that he's asking Amanda Goodwinter to, to marry him. Oh, wow. So, so this relationship has apparently been been blossoming. Very in much so in the, in the interim time. Yeah. Um, let's remember that they only met each other at Quill's dinner party. And it's hard to believe that that's, you know, even in this timeline, we're, you know, only a couple of months down the road from that. Wow. And through all of this, uh, Quill, by the way, is still decorating his carriage house um, with the help <laughs> of Fran Brody. And we get to meet Pete Parrott, the paper hanger. Jesus <laughs> Pete used to be engaged to Belle before she ran away to Vegas with Harley Fitch. And Pete is quite frankly very, very bitter about it. He even at one point claims that Belle's child is his, not Harley's. Oh wow. Um, saying that, you know, he couldn't do her he couldn't do her any good. So Belle comes to him. <laughs> Something's problem. Pete is Pete is a Hmm. Pete is not a happy. Uh, it is not a happy ex. Um, but of course, he also works with Glue, so Coco is again completely enamored. Ah. Um, more bad news comes in the, in the uh, form of a car slash train accident, and the victim is Chad Landspeak, along what? with some of his unnamed vandal friends from Chipmunk, who were all the prime suspects in uh, in the in the hunt. vandal case in the in, uh, graffiti. In the, they were the prime suspects in the vandalism, but they were also the prime suspects in the Fitch murder murder because. The way the police were thinking about it, they've been escalating from uh, opening fire hydrants to wrecking the dental office, and now they're escalating to murder. That's a fire hydrant to murder is a bit of a... Is a a bit of a stretch. But that was what they were thinking. That's that's saying you smoke a joint and somehow you committed 9-11. Exactly. That's that's a Um, bit of a leap. We skipped some steps here. We we did. At this point, this is the page that's marked intermission, where the country celebrates the end of the Fitch murders since the prime suspects are all now dead. Hmm. Um, Quill, however, is quite certain that the case is not at all closed. Oh no, his mustache is still going. Yes, absolutely. So we come back and we're in Act 2 now. Act 2, Scene 1, after a brief meet and greet with Amanda Goodwinter, Quill gets another bombshell. Um, the perfect Fitch family has a few more secrets than their uh, their open secret of having a bootlegging grandfather. Um, <laughs> that waitress who dropped Quill's dessert um, is going to be going to art school on the Fitch family dime. Uh, because Mr. Fitch is actually her natural father, and her actual father has been blackmailing him with this knowledge for years. Oh, wow. So, big bombshell there, so less than the perfect uh, country family. Um, then there's a complete segue, and Quill accepts a dinner invitation from Iris for dinner. Which, hmm. duh, you don't turn down Iris's dinner. Oh, no, her Mrs. Cobb's cooking is Absolutely. delicious. And at dinner, he is joined by Hixie Rice, who's fresh off her date with Gary Pratt from the Hotel Booze. Go, Hixie. <laughs> um, and Quill brings the cats to explore the Goodwinter farmhouse. Hmm. So he gets to see the, Iris's new place of work, see all the work that she's done with yeah. the farmhouse, and let the cats explore, which is always fun. Yeah. Um, but on the way home, it seems like Quill's nosiness is catching up with him in the form of yet another fucking car trying to run him off the road. This is... he. Wow, okay. This, that's becoming a running thing for him as well, too. Running? Uh, <laughs> anyway, where we got? Well, at least it's not idle. <laughs> We're going to motor on past those jokes right now. <laughs> Um, Get full licensure for that because you have a driver's license. That's a bad one. We'll skip that one and continue on. Let's go. So Quill has (laughs) been run off the road again, this time in his car. But while Quill escapes with only minor scrapes and bruises, the cats are thrown from the car and they're missing. Oh, no. So a dramatic evening ensues with Quill being checked on by the local police force because, of course, there's a car sitting there and he's he's not leaving until he finds the cats. No, of course not. Um, And eventually he's joined by Polly Duncan. Really? Despite her earlier bitchiness over everything from Quill's writing to his theater rehearsals, she is the, tonight an absolute rock. She stays through the night while Quill hunts for the missing cats. She keeps him warm in her car. Um, they share terrible coffee from the Dimsdale Diner. Um, <laughs> and oh, really, she, she apologizes for the way she's been acting. Um, and they really have a reconciliation here, which is really nice. Um, and just as the sun's coming up, the cats are found. They are oh, safe God. and sound, except for one minor detail. 
as Quill is running up to find the cats, uh-huh. they get sprayed by a skunk. Oh, no! So he has oh. to take two very stinky cats oh. to back into Polly's car, because, of course, his is totaled, mm-hmm. and they have to drive immediately to the vets for deodorizing. Um, so Paul, it, Quill pro- pro- promises to buy Polly a new car after this one. That's <laughs> the least he can do. Um, clothing gets burned. The cats are not happy about their deodorizing. Oh, I can imagine not. God. But they survived. They survived. They're alive. Um, they're stinky, alive. stinky, but alive. Stinky, but alive. Um, once the cats are stinky, home... That could be a 2020 survival yes, hashtag. Yes, stinky, but alive. <laughs> so once the cats are deodorized, home, and relatively safe, although Mr. Odell makes the comment that whenever the wind blows wrong, they're still going to stink. Oh, no. Um, having lived with a dog who did get sprayed by a skunk, um, Winston... Um, so Winston got sprayed by a skunk, I would say, a year or so before I uh, adopted him. Uh, it's part of the reason why they think he was returned. I never um, knew that. Yeah. Well, really? you, by the time by the time you met Winston, it had finally, finally faded. But and for the first three years that I had him, if it started raining, you could tell where Winston was because you could smell the skunk stink. Oh, no. Oh. I had a friend of mine. Uh, I was staying. I was living in Boulder at the time. And they had a dog who was Nikita, named Nikita. And, yes, I know, it's very meta. Akita, Evita. Akita, our Akita, Evita. Who died? Uh, anyway, but, moving on. Anyway, no, but but she was sprayed by a skunk, and I didn't live long enough, I didn't live with them long enough to see if that was the case, but I remember we did do the tomato bath trick, and that helped. Of course, everything smelled like ragu for the next week. That was the most <laughs> persistent smell. It was not poor Akita. It was the fact it was like living in an Italian restaurant. <laughs> exactly. Which, not a bad thing. So Just, anyway, yeah. Uh, skunks, if, you, if you've never had a pet sprayed by a skunk, it lingers. I'm so sorry. Um, Oof. God, those poor cats. All right. But now, but the cats are now home. They're safe. Good. And the time has come for Quill to head out with Eddington Smith to, to care for the books at the Fitch Mansion. Uh-huh. Um, Coco comes along because, well, why not? Mm-hmm. Um, Quill thinks he might be able to sniff out a clue to why Harley and Belle were shot. And he's admittedly enjoying Coco's company after nearly losing him a few days Of before. course. Coco earns his keep, uncovers a bootlegger's secret room in the library, and then Quill is nearly brained with a femur from a display in the Fitch library. A femur? Yes. The bone? Like a plaster, like a plaster cast of a femur. Okay, I thought somehow the like the bootleg, like he, the cat stumbled upon maybe say a bone cellar. No, that. no. Um, the okay. uh, the Fitches are known for having a, a weird and wild collection, including a lot of skeletons. Uh-huh. Um, according to Amanda Goodwinter, they're all fakes, um, which is, <laughs> turns out to be a good thing for Quill's head because when he gets hit by this, it's plaster, so it shatters. Right. Um, so it's not Oof. heavy enough to actually do any major damage. Fortunately, Quill grabs a bugle, haha, t- Teddy charging up San Juan Hill, um, and does his best Teddy Roosevelt, deafening his attacker, and then knocks him out with a bugle. Charge! Um, Eddington Smith then surprises everyone by covering the attacker with his handgun. What? Um, which turns out to so be. So Eddington a- Smith is just. Just strapped? He's packing? Everyone apparently is packing. Well, it is Moose County, but, yes. it, but still. It should be mentioned that, as Eddington later confesses, it's a good thing he didn't have to shoot anyone because there were no bullets in the gun. <laughs> okay, Barney Fife. <laughs> Settle down there, Barney Fife. Jeez. After all of this, it is revealed that the attacker is Harley Fitch. What? He killed his twin out of jealousy in cahoots with David's wife, Jill, and the two were about to take the family fortune and run away to South America. <laughs> He has been wearing a false mustache to match his twin's facial hair. And apparently oh, it was God, good really? enough to fool everyone except, of course, his parents, <laughs> who basically have died of shame now. Of, oh, God. And this explains why, why why Coco is always attracted to him, because not only did he have the, the glue from his model ships. But he had, he had glue on his face, face for the mustache, right. spirit gum. Exactly. <laughs> there is, so that's... So that is a huge, huge oh. fallout. Um, there is a wrap-up with Arch uh, writing about this for the paper and the first of many complaints of why does nothing ever happen on our deadline. Um, because at this point... <laughs> because it, everyone's dying and there's fake mustaches on It should people. be pointed out that um, the Moose County Something is not a daily paper yet. Oh, okay. Um, it's only publishing, um, I believe, twice a week. Okay. So that's why, you know, they always complain why does nothing ever happen on our deadline. <laughs> Um, it's it's not like they missed it by a day and they, they could put it in tomorrow's paper. No, no, they have to wait a whole week to, wow. to cover this. <laughs> Chief, um, there's a wrap-up also with Chief Brody for some of the details that are frankly too wild for the public to believe. And an epilogue 
after we finish the scene, where David uh-huh. Fitch's attorney tries to get the trial moved out of Moose County because they'll never find an unbiased journey. Um, and Quill contemplates writing a pickaxe review with Hixie Rice, with the tune, title tune being, I left my heart in pickaxe city. <laughs> and see. Curtain falls. Curtain falls. But not hard enough. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, wow. This, this, that was a ro- this one's a roller coaster. Yeah. I think this is my favorite. Just here, I, I have not had a chance to read or listen, but I think this might be my favorite yet. It well, with all of the theater references, especially for you. Yeah, that plays um, up. That plays, that plays up my... nicely. But it <laughs> also, you know, it is just such a. It is so dramatic. All of these moments are so dramatic. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, okay, so there, there's a lot of characters in this. There's a lot of fun names. Oh, my goodness. And so, um, I honestly think that my notes about this episode are almost as long as the summary for the episode <laughs> um, because there's a lot to unpack. Well, now, so Eddington Smith, the strapped antique book collector, which, <laughs> yeah. you know, you always want to, you know, you always want to be packing heat whenever you're getting some uh, old Dickens. But... Uh, <laughs> Do we see him again? Tell me that. Oh yes, Eddington oh, Smith becomes good, a running good. character. Um, he has become. He has now become the current purveyor of constant quotations. Um, That's the name of his shop. No. Um, What's what is constant quotations? Ed's books. Uh, no, that that's my description of what he does because throughout a lot of the oh, okay. throughout a lot of this book, Ed just randomly spouts quotations. Um, everything from uh, Winston Churchill, Teddy Roosevelt. Um, much more obscure quotations that I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, that just sound like the name of his bookshop, which no, would actually be a great name a great for name a for bookshop. bookshop. Constant quotations. Uh, oh, constant yeah. quotations. Well, especially considering that he's that he mostly deals in used books. Mm-hmm. So Eddington Smith becomes a very featured character. There, oh, there is, good. There is usually going to be a scene in most later books where there is at least one trip to Eddington's store <laughs> um, for whatever book Quill is looking for this week. Oh, um, so that's going to be a lot of fun, and he's a great introduction. He is, he's a very shy, very quiet, retiring man. Um, he has a lovely long-haired cat named Winston uh, who eats sardines and makes the back of the shop smell terrible. <laughs> but it's Winston, and you forgive you forgive a Winston You forgive a, a Winston, lot, as we know, as we know, we know so well. well. So... Um, some other notable characters, we've got Wally Todd Whistle, the taxidermist extraordinaire, and his black bear that eventually ends up at the hotel booze. We, through Wally, we also get to meet his mother, Mrs. Todd Whistle. Um, oh, boy. Who leads to a great quotation from Quill. Mrs. Todd Whistle is one of those women who, and I say this with love because I frequently can be one of those women where I talk for people occasionally. I, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a habit I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to break myself of, and I've been getting better. Um. But she talks over her son so much that it leads Quill to come up with this great quip, which is, Mrs. Todd Whistle, I would like to interview you later. Despite all my years of journalism, I have never managed to interview two people at once. <laughs> now, he does exactly that. You know, he finishes his interview with Wally about, um, mm-hmm. about taxidermy. And then he goes out and interviews Mrs. Todd Whistle and gets a whole bunch, of more, bunch more gossip about the Fitch family. <laughs> um, and for the record, I don't think you talk for me. Well, thank you. <laughs> Um, but Mrs. Todd Whistle is also the one who tells us that Harley was in jail. Um, ah, so she's yeah. also a gossip spreader. She is such gossip a gossip feed. spreader. I love oh, it. I love it. Um, she's a lot of fun. Um, she doesn't pop up that much, that much, but she's there. She, she's there significantly. Um, we also have a few more new restaurants. Um, the Hotel Booze has gotten an upgrade, and we meet Gary Pratt, who's the new owner, who well, took over from bear. his dad and the Black Bear. Um, funny thing about Gary Pratt, he charges a nickel for the paper napkins. A nickel for the napkins. Yep, nickel for the napkins. All right, Mr. Krabs. Yeah, exactly. Being very stingy. Okay. There are more jokes about his stinginess later, but it's <laughs> it's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it, it is a, a country quirk, shall we say. Um, but as I mentioned, we had Tipsy's Tavern. Mm-hmm. This is described as simple but excellent food. Uh, Quill says that he, you know, Quill describes his steak as requiring chewing. Um, and Polly's fish actually tastes like fish, not fried breadcrumbs. All of these are excellent things to have about food, but it makes you think what, how terrible the restaurant is. It must have are. really been, yeah. yeah. If it's... Um, and the name, as I said, comes from the original owner's cat, who is described as having a rakish pat- patch over one eye and a deformed foot that caused her to stagger, hence her name of Tipsy. <laughs> Um, at this point, by the way, it should be mentioned, I have started keeping a list of all of the Moose County restaurants. Okay. Um, because, quite frankly... They come in, most of them come and go. We, mm-hmm. we may only hear of a couple of them once or twice. Um, and so I'm curious to see how many I can collect by the time this series is done. I'll be very, well, you may have to do a bonus episode to see what these restaurants are and what kind of cuisine and, well, they and, serve. And how many not. books they lasted. Yes, that's very true. Yeah, I think that'll, I think that'll be interesting. Um, there's, also, there's a couple other things that I'm starting to track as we go through this just to figure out how, 
often certain things get mentioned. Uh, it, it's become, you know, we're, we're now, you know, eight books in. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we're, we're very firmly settled in Moose County now. And we're starting to get things, we're starting to see things repeat. Um, more so than we did when we were down in Shaklevoit. Um, yes, Moose County is made up, but still, an un- it's. I feel it's more. It's easier to build a world of a small town, a small yeah. country town, than it is a big mega, uh, you know, big megapolis or a big exactly. major city. So that definitely plays in the favor yes. of the books as well. Now, speaking of restaurants, this is also the first appearance of what will become Quill's signature drink, squunk water. Squunk water with two U's, uh, served with a twist of lemon. Squunk Corners is apparently produces a unique mineral water that is bottled and that is bottled and widely available throughout the county. Okay. Um, who knew? They don't really explain how everyone gets squunk water, but everyone has squunk water. Go figure. <laughs> um, it's also part of the crazy local genealogy, per our friend Homer Tibbet, again the president, uh, you know, our member of the Old Timers Club. Mm-hmm. Um, Homer Tibbet tells Quill at one point um, that Cyrus Fitch, who was a noted bootlegger. Um, had his stash of illegal booze confiscated one day. It was dumped on a tree stump in Squunk Corners, which is apparently what flavors the water. He is, by the way, as you might have guessed, the grandfather of the Fitch twins, which is how it connects into this book. I see. Okay. Interesting. Now, Quill's dating life. Quill's dating life in this book is very weird. Um, Quill doing theater apparently annoys Polly, so they're on the outs for most of the book. Fran Brody and Alec Wright both try to fill in the position, but frankly, (laughs) Quill is most morose without Polly. Also throughout the book, Fran basically tries to railroad Quill into agreeing to fly down below with her to pick out bedroom furniture. Um, But her seduction seduction schemes are foiled at the last second when Yum Yum maneuvers her tail under Fran's foot, causing her to roll over her toe in open-toed sandals with that giant metal Macintosh coat of arms. Oh, no. So now her her foot is in a cast and she can't fly down below, leaving Quill free to skip the trip and... To happily drive Polly to the airport on the same morning that they were all supposed to leave, and thus saving him from a really awkward flight on a very small plane. Coco and Yum Yum once again save the day. Absolutely. Now, Polly particularly, we learn that Polly's husband was named Bob, which is the only thing we know about him, hmm. um, other than he was a firefighter. Um, but it also mentions that she's lived in her little cottage out on the farm that she was in, in the last book since he died. So that's 25 years that she's that's been in a the long same time. place. Yeah. By the way, it's probably time for a change of scenery, honey. Um, Polly also does not win points for telling Quill that when Quill tells her that he's thinking about writing the newspaper column, Polly responds by telling Quill that newspaper writing is disposable and not worth his time. Hmm. Quill is completely justified in shutting her down um, with her ambitions for him to write a novel when he prefers to write for a newspaper. Right. Now, to her credit, she does apologize sincerely and states he'll be a wonderful drama critic, which is also going to be his new job once the theater opens. <laughs> so instead of be, he's he's decided he's not going to be part of the theater club, he's just going to review for the paper. So he which, could, and, and then he should have been, and again, Teddy, older, whatever, but he should have been Mortimer. That's the only description you get of Mortimer in the script of arsenic and old lace you meet mortimer i forget the last name but mortimer he is a dramatic critic that's all that's the only description you get of mortimer everyone else you get a full description but i guess it just leaves it open-ended so uh for those of you who are not uh inside our house with us which that'd be weird if it were if you were but if you were hey uh welcome uh, Susan has gotten up and she is reaching for a copy of Arsenic and Old Lace that we have. That might be my copy, I'm that pretty is. sure. Uh, yep, Luke Terry Klein. Uh, we combined last names, those of you who are curious, when we got married. Mortimer Brewster. Mort- Brewster, that's yes, the name. Yes, it's because of the Brewster sisters. The Brewster sisters, of course. I couldn't remember. I keep thinking Mortimer Snurd, but that's a uh, Charlie MacArthur character. But it also has the uh, immortal line at the end of the show as well, too, where we learn that uh, Mortimer is not actually a Brewster. No, no, I know which word it's at. Okay. He learns he's not a Brewster, so he doesn't have the Brewster curse. And so he says, Elaine, did you hear that? I'm a bastard. <laughs> and they even and off say, they run happily to get married. Anyway, so I am trying to find... Ah, here it is. Mortimer Brewster walks in. He is a dramatic critic. That's the only description you get of him. <laughs> that's hilarious. I love it. Uh, so that's fun. But you're right. Um, so that's that's actually kind of fun that Quill ends up being the drama critic. Mm-hmm. Um, but he really is inappropriate for the romantic lead of this show. No, um, sure. Understandable, of course. One other thing about, to, to briefly back up, back to Polly. Um, she also does not gain points for one thing. Um, when the Moose County something wins the popular vote and it becomes the name of the newspaper, Polly is really vocal on how terrible she thinks it is. <laughs> it's like, honey, not your call. 
So this is a really fun book. It's very dramatic. It is it's, a fun it's book. It's very yeah. uh, up and down. Um, and I give this a full three paws up. Ah. Um, the summary really doesn't cover all of the very interesting exposition as we get to know the people of Pickaxe and all of their weird and wonderful glory. Um, but the mystery is a classic bait and switch scene, which I really enjoy. And so you're also going to summarize some of those things, I'm guessing, in the blog. Yes. So there'll be a little bit more information in the blog. Um, I, I, some of the things we've talked about, I usually add in a few more uh, details. Mm-hmm. And we'll certainly have, we'll have a link to that in the show Absolutely. notes as well, too, for those um, who would like to read and continue reading. Something that I talked about at the very beginning and then kind of skipped over in my notes. Um, I usually go to the Wikipedia page for each of these books just to see what people talk about. It's also a good way to track and see if any if any book got nominated for an award. Any um, history behind the book. Exactly. Yeah. With this one, the only thing that it has on its Wikipedia page um, is a Publisher's Weekly review. And I would just like to say that the Publisher's Weekly did not enjoy this book. <laughs> this is the review. Um, this is a tame, non-mysterious mystery. When Harley Fitch is murdered, Quillerin doesn't discover anything except for the spotted past of the deceased. Eventually, the killer attacks Quillerin and his identity is made known, but there are no clues and no logical way for the reader to figure out who done it. Is it really necessary for there to be clues throughout a mystery for you to be able to figure out who done it? I know in a lot of cases... Lillian Jackson Braun gets compared very, it's compared sometimes favorably, sometimes not favorably to Agatha Christie because of the sheer prolificness of her writing. Mm. And the fact that she's one of the few female authors who is writing a male protagonist versus a female protagonist. But with that, um, if you look at the Agatha Christie style of writing a mystery, the simple fact is that 90% of the time with a Christie novel, you get introduced to all the characters. And if you, Take a guess at who seems the most least, who seems the most unlikely character to have done the murder. That's usually them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just the way that Agatha Christie's writing works. Um, I, I was watching a very silly movie about it, and she gets called out for that, and she, the character is appropriately horrified. But anyway, um, but it should be said that this is not unusual for Lillian Jackson Braun, that she writes in such a way that the reader doesn't necessarily have. The reader doesn't have all the clues. No. Um, the, the, the reader has the clues that Quillerin has. And that's not always enough. Now, if we go back to the very, very first novel of this series, we didn't know who the killer was until he literally showed up trying to kill Quillerin at the end of the book. Never seen him before, never heard his name, never heard nothing. And then suddenly he was there. So we got a little bit of a wrap-up that explained where he had been fitting into the story. Mm-hmm. And off we went. I think with a lot of... Uh... Like I'm trying to think myself if there is are uh, you know other mystery writers out there where oh they, you you know who the killer is from the very beginning or you know who's who as opposed to it being revealed when say the detective or when the protagonist figures it out yeah uh, thinking back to two completely different genres but Charlene Harris who writes the Suki Stackhouse books which uh, they're just they're fun cozy bedtime books as well too uh, but in the very first book. You don't find out who the killer is until the very end, similar to these other situations. And the only reason you do is because this is the first time that the character, the lead, the lead, uh, you know, the lead is alone with this other character and is able to read her thoughts. Every other time you don't, there's no other clues, there's no other indication. It's only, oh, why are your thoughts not in your Cajun accent? But yeah, like it's a, it's a, it's a fun loophole how it gets there. But you would it, there's no other clues that lead to this. So and that's I don't not, know why that's not a bad thing. I don't think so. And you know, like I said, you know, should mysteries always be solved by the reader? I don't. I say not always. It just depends. Not always. No. It depends on the book. And she's certainly done. Um, Lynn Jackson Byrne has certainly written mysteries where it's very obvious who the killer is. We just need to figure out who it is. Cat Who Saw Red is a great mm-hmm. example of that. Where I'm sorry. You literally know that it is it is the uh, Quill's childhood lover's new husband, obviously, is the killer. He <laughs> sure. is portrayed every time as a bad guy, bad guy, bad guy. This is the bad guy. Mm-hmm. But we don't have enough proof to actually accuse him of it. So we have to wait until we develop that. And there's some other case. Yeah, and you think, like, going back to, I would say, to Grand Dame herself, going back to Agatha Christie, there's plenty of her stories where it's either laid out or it's from the very beginning or it's in a way obvious that 10 little Indians from that 10 little Indians are the less problematic title. And then there were none. Yes. 
for me, that I saw who the killer was for that right away from the very beginning, and it turns out, spoiler alert, that yes, it is the judge. It is Wargrave. I believe his name is Wargrave. But either way, he's the judge because he always wanted to have, a, he always wanted to be the one to have a hanging his way. He wanted to have a murder committed his way as opposed to the suspect's way. And so he orchestrates it. So at the end, when it's, his re- when it's revealed to be him, to me, it's not a surprise, but it's a surprise to some people. So it, it also depends upon who you are as a person if you're looking for the clues or if you want to try to solve it along with the main character with the detective not everybody wants to do that mm-hmm. some will try and some will succeed but some just want to go along for the ride yeah and in a lot of cases quill is more of a character who takes you along for the ride mm-hmm. especially considering how much of this book is not essential to the mystery Right. Um, you may have noticed that my summary has gotten a lot shorter um, <laughs> with this particular book because there is so all of the extra stuff is learning about pickaxe. And as Quill acclimates to pickaxe, we get more stories from old timers. We get more stories from the history of the town. And we, we start to really have this whole situation fleshed, mm-hmm. fleshed out for us. Um, that, and that is equally as important as doing the mystery that we're doing. Right. No, I think so as well, especially for a town that has as much character as Pickaxe does. Exactly. Um, if you're going to call something uh, more different, uh, then you then you got to be able to back it up with being more different. And see. <laughs> and see. I would, you know, I'm curious if anyone else has any thoughts on this, too. Let's actually say, if you've got these thoughts, um, go to our blog, uh, leave us a comment, leave us a thought, yes, and, uh, and and we'd love to bring you in on part of the discussion. I think that'd be great. Yeah, leave a comment. There'll be the uh, link to the blog on the show notes, and uh, that would be... We'd love to hear your thoughts on that, uh, because I'm sure we may you may not agree with us. You may agree with the reviewer, or you may have a differing opinion. We would love to hear that. And we want to hear it anyway. So anyway, if you've got thoughts on uh, if you've got thoughts on whether or not you need to be able to solve the mystery along with the uh, along with the main character, drop us a line at our blog, and we'd love to have you join the conversation. Absolutely. And as you said before, scene. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all for listening to the Cat Who Did a Podcast. Uh, join us next time for the Cat Who Went Underground. Now I'm Susan Ramsdorf Terry. I'm Luke Ramsdorf Terry, and until next time, happy sleuthing and stay nosy, my friends.